morning, church. Um, as I was saying, it's a real privilege um, to be here. Um, I've been to the Downland site a few times. I've actually never been in a meeting, and this is just, it's amazing. I think I was saying earlier, that song, um, You Want to See Jesus Lifted High, is so powerful. I remember singing it when I was young, but I think that was the best time um, I've ever sung that song. That's so amazing. Um, but as Nigel said, my name is Moses. Um, some of you may already know me, some of you may not. Um, and again, as Nigel said, I'm based at the Catford site. So I've been a trainee pastor for nearly a year now um, at Catford. It's been amazing. It's been an interesting experience. Um, but I thank God for every single moment. Um, I'm here with my wife, Francesca. Um, and we have two kids. We have one called Ivor, who's here with us. And we have another who's in the womb. And he will be here in the next two months. In the next two months. Um, but yeah, today we're going to continue within our series, Summer Shorts. Um, if you're wondering why do we call it Summer Shorts, considering the weather, please take it up with Andrew. He's our teaching pastor. He's the one that coined the title. Um, but in that series, what we've been doing is looking at those short New Testament letters or books that, if you're honest, when you're flicking through your Bible, you most probably just skip over them without even noticing. Or when you look at the most maybe quoted scriptures, even amongst those who would consider themselves non-religious, you would hardly find any passages quoted from these books or these letters. But because this statement, the statement that says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, because that statement is true, we've decided that we're going to read and also teach from these books. And so today I've been given a task of teaching from Third John. So that's the third letter written by the Apostle John. He's the same John who wrote the fourth gospel. Um, so before we get into it, let me just pray and then, um, yeah, I'll continue. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that you've given me, Lord, to share your word. Lord, I pray that you would empower me, give me the grace to speak, and Lord, I ask for everyone that's here, Lord, your people, that you would, oh Lord, open up eyes, hearts, and ears to really receive all that you have. Be with us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Cool. So, fortunately enough for most of you, I don't know every um, single detail about your life. Um, I don't know your past. I don't know how you were in school. I don't know the friends that you used to keep. I don't even know the friends that you have now. But don't worry, I'm not going to ask any of you to come up and share. But I will, I'll share a bit about my past. I mean, I grew up in a lovely family, had, a great, had great parents, but my past wasn't all that great. Everything kind of went downhill when I got to secondary school. When I was in secondary school, I started getting into a lot of fights, um, started being very disrespectful to teachers. Sorry to any teachers that are in here. Um, and I ended up getting expelled from two schools um, and ended up in a pupil referral unit. Now, I can see from some of your faces, you're wondering, oh, gosh, how's this guy preaching to us today? All I can say is simple. Jesus is the answer. He brings about real transformation. But, yeah, seriously, I was one of those kids that if you were a parent and your child crossed paths with mine, you would have literally called them away, maybe after parents' evening, and have said to them, look, you see that guy over there? Don't hang around with him. Continue to be good, continue to focus, continue to respect teachers. But me over there, I would have literally been the poster child, the example of what not to imitate. And you can imagine that um, such a conversation with a parent and a child will take place in private, right? I mean, in the West, it's very unlikely that you'll see a parent in front of others openly call out another child and tell their child not to follow their example. 
Um, but there's something in the Bible about open rebuke that's encouraged. And so you see in the wisdom literature in Proverbs, it speaks a lot about openly rebuking people. Jesus, when he was here on earth during his earthly ministry, he practiced it quite a bit when he called out some of the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And even in certain cultures today, that is still common. They're very open, very public about certain things. And that's in order to not only deter their child from going down the wrong path, but other children, and hopefully to draw out the troublemaker themselves from their shameful path. And as we approach Third John, this is kind of where we find ourselves. It's as if we've been let in or have been eavesdropping into a private conversation. But instead of the school being the backdrop, it's the church. And instead of me being a bad example and your child being a good example, both good and bad are leaders in the church. And instead of it being a one-off and secluded conversation, the Holy Spirit decided that he would preserve it for us so that we can also learn from what was happening in this first century church and hopefully from it imitate truth and good rather than imitating evil. And so if you have a Bible, um, please turn to 3 John. It's just before Jude. And Jude is literally just before Revelation, so that's the last um, book in the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, then it should come up on the screen um, for you. So I'm going to start from verse 1. It's a short letter, I think literally 15 verses, so we'll get through it. Okay, so from verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You would do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So that's the letter. And it's a great letter, isn't it? Well, actually, it depends on who you'd more associate yourself with. Rather, you are, whether you're a Gaius or a Diotrephus in the church. But I'll leave that to you to decide. Um, but what you see clearly is that John opens up this letter with immense joy straight from the outset. And that stems purely from knowing that Gaius, who he sent this letter to and who's a leader in the church, is walking in the truth. And so we see that clearly in verse 3, where he says, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. 
So clearly we see that Gaius is making a name for himself, making a name for himself because of his example in the church to the point where it's actually reaching the ears of John, who clearly isn't in close proximity to him. But what I found interesting about this verse is what John says the brothers testify to regarding Gaius' character. And when it says brothers, um, in this passage anyway, it's specifically referring to missionaries who have been sent out to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. But again, check what the brothers testified to regarding Gaius. Notice they didn't say that they testified to his godly character or to his pious ways, but it says they testified to his truth. And when you hear that, you can automatically start thinking or imagining that when they say that they're talking about maybe a medieval inquisition where you have Gaius standing before the congregation like, like, like I am right now and the brothers come and start asking him or grilling him with tough questions about the Christian faith. And after answering all those questions, um, he answers them correctly and then John, I mean, the brothers go back to John and say, look, Gaius is fit to lead the church because he's able to answer every question about the Christian faith. Or maybe we, may, we might think because they said he testified to his truth, that maybe John is saying here that there's many truths, that there's many truths that we can believe in, as many in our society would do today that would subscribe to and say that there's many truths. There's not one truth. There's so many. Um, and that Gaius maybe is just testifying to one of those truths. But that's not, that's not the reason. That's, none of those views actually represent or fully encapsulate why John is full of so much joy. Because for one, if this truth was purely just maybe a recitation of facts regarding who Jesus is or his gospel, then Diotrephus, um, the bad example in this letter, he wouldn't be getting called out because he was a leader and a bad one at that. But for one, he would have been able to agree and also state some of the Christian claims. He would have believed that Jesus existed and walked the earth. He would have obviously agreed that Jesus died on the cross, and he would have also believed that Jesus rose from the grave. But rather, what we see and what John is more joyful over is that, and to which he actually says Gaius has been faithful, his truth, as it were, is that his life, his actions, his service, so those outwardly things, have been in line with the truth, and the truth being the word of God and also the love of God embodied in the person Jesus Christ. And this should be a wake-up call for all of us. Um, it surely was for me that because maybe because we can maybe say the Lord's Prayer or even believe that Jesus died on the cross, that it automatically means that we know the truth and are walking in it. Rather, what we see from this letter, what is spelled out so clearly for us through the lives of Gaius and Diotrephus, is that um, if you sincerely believe the truth, if you sincerely believe the truth about Jesus, then your life, your truth reflected in your life will confess it full of love for all to see and hear. And so what I want to do with the remainder of the time I have is literally just pick out two areas that John commends Gaius for, and I believe areas that God would want us to embody if we claim to believe and also walk by the truth. And so the first area I want to touch on is on draw upon, which John commends Gaius for, is sacrificing for strangers. Yes, sacrificing for strangers. I know it sounds weird. It might even sound borderline radical. And that's especially the case if you maybe grew up in London like I do, like I did. I mean, in London, we're not too good um, with strangers, let alone even our own neighbors. In fact, our neighbors have actually become strangers. Um, and it's to our shame. It's really to our shame, especially if we're Christians and we do not know our neighbors. 
Um, I was reading a few surveys before I came here, and one of them said this. It's going to come up on the screen. It said, nine out of ten people in London wouldn't be able to identify all their neighbors in a police lineup. (laughs) Another one said that across the UK, some 60% of people don't know their neighbors well or at all, and 63% never borrow things or exchange favors with them. And London did worse when it came to people knowing and being friendly with neighbors. It's sad, but that is our, our reality. I mean, I noticed it, like, yeah, hardcore when I went to the U.S. So I was in New York um, a few years ago, and I went running, um, and I saw this man um, with his dog, and he came, not approaching me, but he was walking in my direction. And he said, good morning, and I thought, oh, he can't be talking to me. He must be talking to someone else. There must be someone um, behind me that he's speaking to, because I'm not from here. He doesn't know who I am. Um, I was, and that was my first response. Can you imagine? Just too wrapped up in my world, too, too comfortable with that London living to even accept or receive the kindness of a stranger. But when it comes to family, we're different, right? When it comes to family, we, most of us anyway would do anything for them. We literally give up everything. And I was on Instagram actually when preparing this message. And I didn't get my content from Instagram in case that's what you're um, thinking. But I was on Instagram and this point about family was made strikingly clear when I came across the picture of a guy and his sister. Um, and on the caption, it basically said that he would be willing to go jail without a shadow of a doubt if anyone touched his sister in the wrong way. Now, obviously that sounds aggressive and probably not the way we should respond, but the underlining point still, is still true, that for those in our family, we would do certain things that we otherwise wouldn't for those who weren't a part of it, Right? And this is what John is commending Gaius for, because Gaius, he sacrificed. He gave up much for those who weren't part of his immediate family, but were in fact strangers. And John makes that clear in verse 5 and 6 that we read, where he said, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. And so we see in Gaius's life the truth, the solid truth of the gospel demonstrated over and above that which you would see today, which is common for us. The gospel where in Christ, those who were strangers relationally become brothers, they become family. And so sacrifices that you otherwise wouldn't make for strangers are made because in Christ, those strangers are not only strangers, even if you just met them. Rather, they are your family because we've been brought together. We've been brought, pulled together through the blood of Jesus. And so, you see, when the early church, when they used the term brother to refer to one another, it wasn't a loose term that was just meant to be thrown around. Not at all. Rather, that term, when you said brother, it implied a demonstration of love, as you would for anyone who has the same father as you did. And they fully believed, the church, the early church anyway, they fully believed that if you truly had the same father as they did in heaven, if your father in heaven was the same as mine, God Almighty, then you, you automatically had rights. You automatically had benefits. And that was regardless of whether I'd met you or I only just met you a moment ago. And that's the radical nature of the gospel radical nature of the gospel. Now, we don't know much about Gaius's immediate family. We don't know whether he was married or whether he had kids, whether he was wealthy or whether he was just getting by. But given what we know about the times of the early church, it's 
clear that he would have not only provided shelter for these brothers, but he would have also provided safety because um, at that time, the persecution of Christians was becoming quite rife. Um, But not only that, he would have provided food for their stay. And so literally overnight, his house would have literally turned into an all-inclusive hotel. And not just for one person who he didn't know personally, but for many, because the passage clearly implies that this was more than one person. He said brothers rather than brother. Now, as I said earlier, my wife and I, we have um, two kids, um, one on the way. And I can just imagine the type of conversation we'd have if Steve, um, the senior pastor at King's, if he spoke to us and said, look, Moses, Fran, for a week or for a few days, can you please take in this pastor who's coming from Glasgow um, who wants to do some work in London with the youth? I can imagine the amount of pushback we'll give. I mean, we'll say, you know what, I might not like him. Um, We haven't got enough food. Um, Our room isn't that big. Or simply put, do you know what, we don't know him. That's just awkward just awkward. But the reality is that all of these are sacrifices. And if we are claiming, me and you, if we're claiming to live by the truth, we're claiming to live by the truth of the gospel like Gaius did, then these sacrifices will have to be made. And Gaius knew this. He knew this. He wasn't oblivious. He wasn't dumb. Not at all. But his commitment to the truth, his love, in response to God's love for him revealed in Jesus, that caused him to consider the sacrifice of loving these brothers, those strangers. And in the end, this compelling love within him outweighed every sacrifice that was presented. And when I was preparing, it kept, it's like the Holy Spirit kept impressing this on my heart, that this wasn't meant to be a unique thing for Gaius alone to sacrifice for strangers. No, it was meant to be something that anyone who would say they follow Jesus Christ should embody. And I was reminded of this passage in Matthew where Jesus made it so clear. Um, And in the context, the context of this passage is final judgment of the nations by King Jesus. And if you've maybe been wondering up to this point, you're convinced I need to be sacrificing for my brothers, then listen up because Jesus gives some very practical um, examples. So it's taken from Matthew 25, Verse 35 to 40, it's going to come up on the screen as well. It says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Wow. So not only do we see the basis of our judgment before King Jesus, but we also see that our sacrifices, whether it's visiting someone who is sick, that's in hospital, or um, seeing someone that's in prison, or even using our money, our hard-earned financial resources to cater for someone else's physical needs. When we sacrifice, these sacrifices for our brothers who may be strangers, what we see from this passage is that those sacrifices are actually made towards Jesus himself. And this is what gave John joy, because he could see that by Gaius faithfully caring for these brothers, that, in fact, he was actually faithfully serving the Lord. And the same is true for us today. 
It's so true. But that's in stark contrast to Diotrephus, right? I mean, he had leadership position. And as John says, he likes to put himself first. And now when we hear that and see that through what Jesus said in Matthew, we see clearly that by putting himself first, what he was doing was actually putting himself over and above Jesus. And by not welcoming the brothers, what Diotrephus was actually doing is saying, look, I don't want to welcome Jesus. And the reality is we do that every time we fail to sacrifice in love for those in the family of faith. But this is why God has graciously given us this letter. Because if there's any of us who are maybe walking like Gaius already, then we can be encouraged. But if there's anyone else like me, I would say I, I don't sacrifice. I'm not the best at sacrifice. And so if there's anyone who is walking or moving like Diotrephus, then this, this message, this um, letter is meant to challenge us and help realign our lives to the truth. But apart from sacrifice for strangers who, may, who in Christ are our brothers, John highlights another area. He says that we should imitate this if we are embodying the truth. In fact, he makes it a duty, and that's support for such brothers. In essence, what he's saying is that if we are imitating truth, then like Gaius, our lives would be one of sacrifice for those who are in Christ. But then we would also support the very same people because of what they do in the name of Christ. And he emphasizes this in verse 7 and 8 where he says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And it's important that when we read this passage anyway, we remember the context. Because although John is saying, and he would support that we should take care and support our brothers and sisters in Christ, who may be doing all manners of things in the name of God. What he's saying in this immediate sense, in this immediate context, is that we should actually support those who are missionaries, those who, for the sake of the gospel, who have gone out to proclaim and teach the good news, have left all comfort to ensure that this message, this great message about our Lord, our Savior, and his kingdom is heard all over the world. And when I was studying this, it was, um, yeah, it was funny. I kept just thinking of the World Cup, the World Cup, the World Cup. I don't know whether I'm just a sore loser or I'm just, um, yeah, just very patriotic. But just bear with me for a moment. Just think about the World Cup just for a quick moment. Um, so obviously you had Gareth Southgate and the boys, they qualified for the World Cup um, and went to Russia to play. In other words, they went out for the sake of the nation. Yeah? And what's interesting, actually, is actually backed up by the fact that the money that they earned from um, playing in the World Cup, they actually don't keep it. They donate it to a charity. So truly, they went out for the sake of the nation rather than for um, themselves. But imagine that throughout the tournament, we failed to support England. So throughout the group stages, um, the round of 16 quarterfinals, we failed to support them. And instead of wearing a Free Lions jersey, we watched every match wearing a Croatian jersey. Now, I can see from some of your faces, like, that's unthinkable, unheard of. Who would ever do that? Do you know what I mean? You probably say to me, look, you shouldn't do that. We should support the national team because even though we're not playing on the front line, even though we're not in Russia, our support is crucial. We need to encourage those who rep the nation. And in fact, though we're unseen, we're like that 12th man on the pitch. And in a similar way, this is what John is trying to say. As it's so intuitive for us to 
support those who represent the various nations that we come from, so too, without questioning, we should support those who have gone out for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, it's sad, but the reality is today that um, we find ourselves supportive of literally everything else apart from the one, that name that holds everything together. I mean, football's great, but football does not heal. Football's great, but it does not save. Football is great, but it does not forgive sins. And football's great, but it doesn't reconcile us back to God, the very source of life itself. And so for us, when we see our brothers and sisters um, who have gone out for the sake of the name, whether it's to preach Jesus on the streets of Lucian, or whether it's to go to China to equip the church, as um, a couple actually at Catford, Ian and Angela, they recently went um, to China, or whether it's seeing people who have gone to Alpha to lead a table, let us be quick, very quick, to support them, whether it's by giving financially, whether it's by praying for them, or whether it's just calling them and giving them an encouraging word in the air. Let us be quick to do that. Why? Because as we do so, not only do we help in extending hope and restoration to a broken world, but we also equally become frontliners, that 12th man on the pitch, fellow workers for the truth. And some of you um, may be aware that we recently um, took some of our young people to New Day. And and whilst out there, um, there was an amazing testimony, a story that was told um, that literally hits the nail on the head with regards to supporting our brothers. So um, the story goes like this anyway. There was a church, a church plant, so a new church was started, just kind of like the full site that we're about to launch in Beckenham. Um, And obviously, when you start a site, there's all things that take place. You need people that will go to the site and actually lead it. You need those who would also financially sow so that you can maybe get a building or rent um, that building. And so this church plant was started in a state somewhere in the U.S. And there was a lady in that church who shared the gospel with a guy called Andy. And Andy was a criminal. And he heard the gospel, and by the grace of God, he became a Christian, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Um, and in becoming a Christian, he started thinking, wow, I've done so many crimes that the police haven't actually caught me for. Caught me for. And so he actually handed himself in, um, got arrested, and went to jail. But he saw that as an opportunity to share the gospel. So he got into um, the prison, into the jail, and he met, uh, obviously, his bunkmate in his cell. His name was David. And so Andy shared the gospel with him, and David became a Christian. And so when David now left jail, he went out, obviously as a Christian, and he met one of his friends, called, he met a friend called Nabil, who came from a Muslim background. And so David shared the gospel with him. And after a number of years, Nabil also became a Christian. And Nabil, you can just check him up on YouTube. Unfortunately, he's dead currently, or right now, but he's with the Lord. Um, but if you check online about Nabil, he has shared the gospel with over millions Um, especially in the Middle East, and many have come to faith through him just preaching the gospel. Now, again, remember that story tracks all the way back to this church plant. People who we haven't heard of, I haven't told you about, I don't even know who gave financially or who prayed for this church. But what we see in supporting our brothers, we all are part of that work. We're all part of that work for truth. And so when we see people, like in this story, people being saved, people coming to Christ in the Middle East, 
It's all as a result of those who were supported in the first instance, praying, giving financially, and whatnot. Now, it will be easy to just get up and leave here and say, you know what, okay, cool, I've heard you, Moses. Let me um, go and set up a direct debit to a certain ministry that I've seen. Or let me go and visit someone in hospital who I know is sick. And while I wouldn't say that you shouldn't do that in response to God's word today, um, what I would want you to know before you do anything, which we should all know, is that truth works its way into our lives and then works its way out. And I'm just echoing what John has already said um, in this letter, because in light of all the good that he's commended guys for, in light of everything he has said about diatrephus, he leaves us with this in verse 11. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And so in other words, what he's saying is that our capacity... Our capacity, our ability to sacrifice instead of being selfish towards our brothers or to support those who proclaim Jesus as the Messiah rather than distance ourselves from them comes solely, it comes solely from being born of God and seeing him and not mere willpower. Willpower will not help us in trying to in sacrifice for our brothers or supporting them. And so you see, imitating truth actually requires us knowing the truth for himself. And so in the words of John from his gospel account, he, he would say that means receiving the true light, that light that came into the world to get rid of all darkness. He would say that, but that means believing in his name because he is able to make us children of God, born not of man, not of willpower, but actually born of God. But John will also say that means seeing God. And while he says in one place that no one has seen the Father, He goes on to say that the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so for you and me, for us to really embody and imitate truth, that means that we need to receive and also look very closely at Jesus. Look at the face of Jesus, the Son of God. It means that the one who, for our sake, became a servant. The Son of God who, for our sake, killed those who were oppressed by the devil. The one who, for our sake died on a cross for our sin while we were still sinners and who for our sake rose from the dead as Lord and King, giving eternal life to all who would repent of their sin and believe. And I believe, church, I honestly, I truly believe that by the grace of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit, that if we receive, if we receive who Jesus is and receive his love and look long enough at this crucified, amazing, gracious, sacrificial, loving, and glorified king, that we will become the people that Jesus has called us to be, imitators of truth, his disciples who love one another in deed and truth, just as he loved us. And by doing so, proclaim to this world that the Father has indeed sent the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me just pray for us in closing. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we don't sacrifice for mere willpower, but we sacrifice for others because your son sacrificed his life for us. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus went to that cross, died, took our judgment, and rose from the grave victoriously. And he 
not only gives us power by the Holy Spirit, but he calls us to now sacrifice for our brothers. Lord, I pray, give us the grace. Help us, Lord, to walk like you. Help us, Lord, to extend grace to others, our brothers and sisters in the faith, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those of us, Lord, who might not know you here today, Lord. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us to see you, help them to see you for who you are as that king, the glorious one who sacrificed for his people. Lord, I pray that for all of us, Lord, we will see you more clearly. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.